This is the Bartholomew Town Podcast. Hey everybody, it's Bill Bartholomew here with you, and it's great to be back here behind the mic. Um, some of you know that I tested positive for COVID-19 like a week and a half ago, and if you haven't heard, COVID sucks. There's no doubt about it. That's, that's a fact. Um, fortunately, my symptoms were mostly mild. Now I'm at the point where I'm back out in public, I'm back at the radio station on WPRO, and you know, just dealing with this fatigue. And I've heard so much about this from so many of you that that have written during the last week and a half or so that, you know, it's a couple of weeks, I guess, of post-COVID fatigue. So the timing, not optimal with the election coming up, but, you know, I'm trying to power through. I was able to get some content out during, um, during my period of isolation, which, let me tell you something, I had more time to clean and organize than I probably ever have in my, had, have had in my life and my studio right now, the floors are sparkling. So there's that. I guess that's the upside of it. But um, I appreciate those of you who reached out. And yes, I am. Uh, I'm on the mend. And that's enough of that. You know. I, again, I appreciate it. Um, look, the election is coming up on Tuesday, and we've been working towards this now since you know the last local election really in many ways since 2018. I remember the day after the general election in 2018. There was already chatter about how 2022 is going to be such a big time election year here in Rhode Island. And I think in many ways that's true. Okay, I mean, I'm not, I'm sure that, you know, fundamentally, this is going to be remembered as a very um, interesting and important election uh, election cycle, election season, however you want to frame it. But I also think that due to a lot of factors, this comes from my own sort of assessment and speaking with candidates who are out knocking on doors and speaking with people who are, you know, very loosely engaged in Rhode Island politics, that in some ways this has been kind of an unfortunately boring year in the sense that I just don't feel like it's it's risen to the mainstream level of interest that previous local elections have. Now, there's still those of us who are inside politics. We live with this every day. So it may be tough to get a sense of just how accurate that is, that statement. But I've been saying you know, for a couple of weeks now that I think more people could name five Patriots players than five people running for governor. And you know, that just shows you that whether it's COVID itself— um, the post-Trump era, um, you know, the, the economic challenges that we're facing, whatever it may be, there's just a little bit less general engagement. Again, that's just my anecdotal assessment. There's still a ton of people that are listening to the podcast, listening to radio, reading the papers, whatever it is. It's not, you know, the, the, the audience of those who care is as strong as ever um, in terms of the inside. But I wonder, people in your life, are you noticing this, that there's just less general excitement, awareness, engagement in this election cycle. Maybe that changes in the general election. You know, this Democratic primary for governor with five candidates on the ballot, it's and three primary front runners. It's it's fascinating in that, you know, I don't know how much the sands have shifted in terms of somebody flipping from one candidate that they've been supporting for a period of time to another candidate. But the undecided voters, you know, 30, 40, whatever it is percent of those who are polled in various polls who are saying that they're undecided, okay? 
again, that could be a reflection of people just have no idea who these candidates are. You know, that they're not just, you know, pulling a name out of uh, thin air just for, for the sake of answering a question. But I think that there's definitely some, um, in fact, there's a whole lot of reason to think that there could be some surprises on Tuesday when we, we start to find out, if not find out entirely, who's won the various primary elections, particularly in the gubernatorial race for the Democratic primary. So a couple of things. First of all, um, we've got our debate series, which I moderated debates for in the Democratic primary for lieutenant governor, treasurer. And in each of those races, you know, we had candidates not show up. Sabina Matos, the lieutenant governor, did not show up for the lieutenant governor's debate that I hosted on the podcast and on WPRO. She also blew off the Channel 10 debate, which is just utterly shocking. So there's that. On the treasurer side, James Diosa. Remember that guy? He was the mayor of Central Falls. And, um, you know, he's, he's one of two candidates that are in this race for treasurer along with Stephen Pryor. Diosa didn't show up for our debate, but he did show up for three other debates, channels 10 and 12 and the Latino Public Radio. So, you know, he, he at least is out there, right, a little bit more. I also moderated debates for mayor of Providence. Now, the Democratic primary is essentially the election. I mean, it is, unless there's some kind of write-in candidate that is able to mount some unprecedented campaign in the next couple of weeks going into the general election. The winner of that Democratic primary for mayor of Providence, be it Gonzalo Cuervo, Brett Smiley, or Nirva LaFortune, will be the next mayor of Providence. You can hear that debate, which I moderated, and Democratic primary for governor, where all five of the Democratic candidates were there, Governor McKee, Secretary Gorbea, Helena Bonanno folks, Matt Brown, and Dr. Lewis Daniel Munoz. We also had a congressional debate with five of the six candidates uh, that was moderated by my friend and colleague Bill Haberman, the Hall of Fame news director over at WPRO, in my absence as I was down with COVID. So all of those are available here on the podcast or on 997wpro.com. Just click on the Election Central tab. A um, little bit more programming notes. Coming up next week, we'll have another election preview on Monday here on the podcast. I'll be joined by Dan McGowan of the Boston Globe. We'll break down where things sit on Election Eve, then Election Day in Rhode Island. I'll be up bright and early. I'll be going around to different polling locations, um, doing some live streaming. Follow me on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, wherever, and you'll be able to see some of that content as I go around. And you know, I'll probably do a little man on the street, talk to some report, uh, talk to some. Um, Voters, some some exit polling. Obviously, that sample size will be so minuscule; it won't really have any impact in terms of making an assessment on how candidates are doing. But we'll get a flavor there. We'll talk to some candidates as we're out and about, as we've done the last several years here on the podcast on election days. Um, then from three to six, of course, I'll be with Dan York on WPRO for the afternoon drive show, the Dan York Show. I'll be there, and then I'll be moderating, uh, hosting coverage election night on the radio you'll also be able to watch that on my social media live i'll have a panel with me and we'll be doing our live broadcast as we await the results of the 2022 primary elections and that'll be really interesting to see we of course have seen shifts in how votes are are um voting is conducted with early voting emergency ballots so on and so forth Will we actually have any kind of result on Tuesday night? I, I think we'll we'll have a better sense than we've had in previous years um, as the Board of Elections has had opportunities to make adjustments to their tabulation processes and so on and so forth. So Tuesday night, election night, 
starting at 8 o'clock live on WPRO, and again, also on social media. We'll be broadcasting it there as well. We'll have election night in Rhode Island. We'll have the results for you live. We'll have a bunch of reporters out and about. Um, Steve Clampkin, Paul Zangari. We'll have some of our friends from other outlets, including the Globe, um, out and about checking in and offering some analysis. I'll be joined in studio by Jim Hummel and others as well. So that's Tuesday night at uh, starting starting at eight o'clock. Election Day in Rhode Island coverage here on Bartholomew Town and across our partner platforms, including WPRO Radio. So. Look, going back to that notion, the undecided voters, hey, could that impact, when we look at the governor's race specifically, could there be a shocker? You know, the last several debates, the three major debates, the WPRO, the, the, the Channel 12 and Channel 10 debates, have seen the candidates in one way, shape, or form kind of gang up on Governor McKee. And then there's also this sidebar back and forth between Nellie Gorbea and Helena Bonanno folks. Now... In terms of funding, folks is loaded and has been, you know, running some at least one very effective ad that compares and contrasts her against both McKee and Gorbea. That's a new ad, but it's very effective. And I think that for the average person who's undecided, again, those unplugged, uh, not unplugged in voters, it's going to be really interesting to see if her sales pitch, if you will, um, motivates at least some undecided voters to look deeper into Helena Bonanno folks. She picked up the endorsement of the Boston Globe. All right, that's huge. Or is it? I guess it is. I think it's I think it's pretty big. And again, I don't know how much this will move the needle, but on Sunday she's going to have Nancy Pelosi in town for a get out the vote rally on her behalf. So, I think that Helena folks is someone who spent a ton of money and really wasn't polling in a competitive uh, manner uh, very much at all until, you know, and again, we don't even really know what an accurate poll would look like, but in the snapshots that have been conducted, she really hasn't been um, uh, in any way, shape, or form a front runner. It's been Governor McKee and Secretary Gorbea. But I think in, in the closing days here, it's going to be really important to watch what Helena Bonanno folks does and what kind of reaction she gets from those undecided voters, right? And that's true for all the candidates. But does folks have the ability to peel off voters who had previously supported Nellie Gorbea? Does she have the ability to peel off voters who have previously supported Governor Dan McKee? Those are critical questions. Because that undecided voting block isn't going to go exclusively to one candidate. So for folks to make up ground, she's going to have to capture undecideds and she's going to have to peel off voters from, from the two front runners, McKee and Gorbea. Now, Gorbea, low on cash, but still has independent expenditures running ads on her behalf. She's dogged a little bit by this latest voting machine, um, voting ballot situation in Providence where there's some some mishaps with ballots. And, you know, as Secretary of State, some people are going to frame her as the chief voting officer of the state and, and put the blame on her there. I don't know if the average voter, again, sees that as anything relevant in terms of them making a decision. And Governor McKee, you know, <clears throat> the governor is 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 being dogged by, first of all, you got Matt Brown asking, you know, or insinuating that the governor's possibly or, you know, potentially going to be indicted while in office. Does that resonate with people or does that seem like, you know, just kind of, um, you know, hysterics? That's a big question. 
but dealing with, to a certain extent, Tidewater Landing, which, you know, look, it is what it is. The project's going forward. There's going to be $60 million in taxpayer expenses, $10 million of which comes from the city of Pawtucket. You know, does that deal manifest as it ought to be manifested in terms of producing the auxiliary developments with the pedestrian bridge, the housing, the shopping, the parking, so on and so forth, that's required for it to be fiscally sound. You know, that's a waiting game. And I'm not sure that Tidewater Landing in and of itself was going to have any kind of major impact on this election. But the insinuation of the ILO group scenario that Governor McKee, you know, that's the education contract that he that he awarded to the ILO group, which was formed just like a day before he became governor. And people are charging that it's, hey, this is insider um, dealing, you know, and then the FBI has, you know, or at least the, the U.S. attorney has engaged in some kind of uh, investigation on this. Now, McKee says he hasn't been subpoenaed. He wouldn't say in the latest debate on Channel 12 whether or not anybody inside his administration has been subpoenaed. And I think that that right there could be somewhat damaging to the McKee operation. That again, those those undecided voters, your average person who has really no idea um, about the day-to-day operations of, of Rhode Island politics, they might say, hey, wait a second. You're telling me this guy's under FBI investigation? Jeez, I don't, I don't like that. You know, that reminds me of, of the side of Rhode Island politics that's, that's dreadful. Whether you're talking Buddy Cianci or, or, you know, Speaker Fox, whatever it may be, that, that's the type of stuff that is highly frowned upon, the reputational aspect of Rhode Island politics that people can't stand. And I think that in terms of maybe losing some support, that's, that's potentially there for Governor McKee. But at the same time, how many people are actually watching debates? How many people are actually paying attention to this stuff versus those who will go in and will say, yeah, he's the governor and he's doing a pretty good job. You know, we're, we're well vaccinated. You know, our unemployment numbers are looking good. You know, I'm satisfied with, with the status quo um, at, at, in terms of from a governor's perspective. And, you know, I'm going to pull the lever for, uh, for, for Governor McKee. We don't really know. But we need to keep our eyes on those undecided voters and how they shift. The sands that shift will be what determines this election. It's not a scenario where you have a dominant front runner and, you know, any opponent is just it's just throwing bombs um, to chip away at a singular candidate. You really have two, maybe even three front runners who are beating each other up. Okay, and it's it's the negative messaging and it's the constructive messaging combined that will determine how this thing shapes out. So again, we are just, you know, we're closing in, folks. Early voting is well underway. It is Bill Bartholomew here with you on the Bartholomew Town Podcast. And I'm just looking out the window right now, and I'm thinking about this election, and I'm thinking, wow, you know, we may have some surprises. Now, on the lieutenant governor's side, I don't know what's going to go on there. You know, I don't know what's going to go on there. I think that's a toss-up. I mean, the the the, the union endorsements, the um, political insider ability that Sabina Matos has will impact this race. She will have an advantage as a result of that. But does Deborah Giro, you know, who's been out and about, and I've, I've seen her and her campaign out and about at different events, so on and so forth, or Cynthia Mendes for that matter, resonate as an alternative 
to the status quo with enough voters, with enough undecided voters, uninformed voters, that there could be a changing of the guard of the lieutenant governor slot, um, at least in terms of going into the primary or coming out of the primary. Because I think that in the lieutenant governor's race, there's actually a credible candidate in Aaron Gukian, the Republican, that'll be an interesting matchup. So again, undecideds there. Does the debate, just blown off debates, impact Sabina Matos? I mean, it should. Let me take myself out of it because I was, I was annoyed. And in fact, I was just disappointed that she didn't show up for, for the debate I, I put together. So let me take myself out of it and just let's look at it as objectively as we can and take emotion out of this. What is she doing? Why didn't she get in front of the state? I mean, they're going to say, well, she went to the Channel 12 debate. Fine. That's the number two TV network. How many people actually watch TV anyway? You know, so the fact that you don't go on the number one station, Channel 10, the by, you know, leaps and bounds and, and you know, incalculable, in, in calculable amount number one radio station in WPRO and the podcast here which reaches a younger and, and varied demographic you blow that off and you miss the chance to talk to voters I mean come on man it, it's it's it should impact the race will it remains to be seen in the congressional race look David Siegel says he's surging is he you know Sarah Morgenthau says you know she's the most experienced anybody ever heard of her before you know, Joy Fox is a wonderful, wonderful person and somebody who I think could be a very effective congressperson. But does she have any kind of momentum that can actually put her over the top? How about Omar Ba, one of the best stories in Rhode Island politics in a long time? A fabulous individual. No chance that he's going to be able to uh, overcome the Seth Magaziner operation. And don't even get me started on Spencer Dickinson, who is a, you know, he's a good guy. He's a passionate guy, but what the hell is he doing in this race? You know, the, the, the couple thousand votes that he may take really belong to other, other candidates who have been working on a much longer-term basis and should be able to walk away with a performance um, that, that, that exceeds what they probably will get as a result of Dickinson's involvement in this Democratic primary. You know, again, that's not a knock on Spencer Dickinson, the person. That's just like, you know, what are you doing in this race when you've got a million people in it already? He does bring a different perspective on certain issues. There's no question about it. But he picked the wrong race or at least the wrong year to get involved. As, and he has that, you know, a, a, that Chris Young kind of perennial candidate vibe. On the treasurer side, you know, look, Stefan Pryor, obviously a guy who has an incredible resume. James Diosa, obviously a guy who is favored by the, the, the internal political establishment here in Rhode Island. Two guys who most people had never heard of before. So when they go to the polls... Who knows what's going to determine that? I mean, I don't remember the last poll specifically that was in the treasurer's race. I do recall that they were that, that Diosa and and actually I believe Diosa and and Pryor were separated by like a point or two in the most recent poll, the WPRI Roger Williams University Joe Fleming poll. But they only had like twenty something percent of the vote, which means like more than half <laughs> of those who were polled have that don't have an opinion on this race, and it's a critical office. I have no idea how that's going to play out. Pryor's out there doing this uh, 24-hour tour where he started out at Dunkin' Donuts in Providence at 4 o'clock in the morning. They're going everywhere you know, for 24 hours. He did that this week. Theos is out there picking up more and more endorsements, especially on, you know, again, the, that sort of insider, um, insider Rhode Island politics side of things. But I have no idea how the undecided voter makes a decision with any level of informed ability on this race. 
it's going to be interesting to see, right? Really, this is why we do it. Mayor of Providence, you know, hey, look, Gonzalo Cuervo is the guy that has the arts community behind him, the progressive community behind him. A lot of Latino community is behind him. A lot of a lot of different pockets of Providence are there. And Mayor Alorza endorsed him. Nirvala Fortune's got the teachers. She's going to be the education mayor. She's very competent as well. And Brett Smiley is the guy who seems to be, you know, in many people's eyes, the most, um, you know, the, the guy who has built a, a, a campaign that resonates as, hey, I should be the next mayor. I, I'm the guy who fits into that box the best. I have the most managerial experience, so on and so forth. I think there's going to be an upset there. I think that there's going to be a lot of a lot of people who are surprised about that result. That comes from the the, the fact that I live in Providence. I know a lot of different people um, that 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 represent different pockets of Providence. And I'll just say this: I don't think that the person who is the projected front runner in that race will win. And that just comes from extremely anecdotal and unscientific and perhaps even ridiculous to, to state types of experiences that I've had. But hey, keep an eye on him. And back to the governor's race. Matt Brown, Dr. Lewis Daniel Munoz. You know, the two the two candidates that are not considered the front runners who have brought, both brought a tremendous amount of of important policy positions, advocacy and weight to this race. I think they're going to perform better than people are expecting them to. I think that, that that those undecided voters, again, Munoz got, got he, he should have been on the Channel 12 debate stage. I don't care what criteria they're using on a national level, you know, what that is, um, because he had an outstanding performance in the, in the WJR 10 debate, and he did very well in the WPRO debate. He should have been in the Channel 12 debate. But regardless, both he and Matt Brown, I think, are each uniquely positioned to appeal to those who want outsider candidates. Now, they're not going to really cannibalize each other because I'm not convinced that if you took one of them away that the combined um, support for each of them would add up into anything that would be, you know, like let's say, you know, you took Matt Brown, dropped out of the race, and he he's going to get 8% of the vote and Munoz is going to get 7% of the vote. I'm not sure that, that Munoz then gets 15% of the vote. I'm, I, I don't think it goes that way. I think that, that, that that's a, it's a lazy way of looking at it. Oh, the two progressives, you know, they're, they're not both the two progressives. They have very different approaches to this whole thing. But I do think where they will come in is they will take votes from an outsider standpoint that would be used to defeat Governor McKee by either a Secretary Gorbea or by Helena Bonanno folks. That's the role that they will play in this race. You want, to, you want to call it spoiler? I don't think it's spoiler. I just think that the fact of the matter is that those two guys combined will take votes that would go to alternative candidates, in this case, the alternative candidates to the, to the incumbent, Gorbea and folks. So in addition to advocating, bringing important issues to the table, in debates and in throughout this campaign, they will, in many ways, I think, impact this election in terms of peeling votes away from those. And they go, look, you want to, Helena, folks, you know, she's 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 going to tell you she's not a politician, she's not this, she's not that. That's all well and good. Look, she comes from the political class. She's she's extremely wealthy. 
She's been a part of corporate America where politics is dominated by business, the business party, right? Let's be honest about it. So she's, she's an outsider in the sense that she hasn't run for anything anymore, but she's not really an outsider. Nor is Secretary Gorbea. She spent uh, how many, you know, well over, what is it, almost a decade, obviously, as, as Secretary of State. But to the average voter who doesn't really know who these people are, those undecided voters, they are outsiders, much like Munoz and Brown are, and where those voters cast their ballot, not in terms of the polling location, where which, which dot they darken in that gubernatorial race will determine whether or not Governor McKee advances. I don't think McKee will build much new support. I think he has his foundation of support. It's a question of whether the other candidates cannibalize each other in the sense that they forge one coalition of outsiders to the average undecided voter. And neither of them, none of them, I should say, are able to get over whatever number McKee has as his base of support. But we got a long way to go until Tuesday night at at 8 o'clock when polls close. And I'll tell you right now, as sleepy, boring, however you want to put it, as this election cycle has been compared to what I think a lot of us wanted it to be in terms of, 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 of general buy-in. I don't think it's going to come out that way on election day. I think it's going to be real interesting, really close, and really important. I'm Bill Bartholomew. This is the Bartholomew Town Podcast. Remember, you can subscribe, rate, and review wherever you're listening right now. And I look forward to talking to you next week again, Monday, Dan McGowan, with an election preview Tuesday, Election Day in Rhode Island, across the platform, social media, radio, and here on the podcast. We'll talk then.